Hi, I'm Jamar McNeil. I'm Anne-Marie Meadowake. And I'm Candy Palmiter from the Mi'kmaq Nation. And we're coming to you today from the unceded territory of the Mississauga of the Credit, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. On today's episode, we discuss the child welfare system in Canada, focusing on the huge disparity when it comes to racialized groups in foster homes. Statistics show that Indigenous and Black children are sent into the welfare system at higher rates than other children. Here's some numbers for you to think about. According to the 2016 census, more than half, that's 52.2% of children in foster care, they were all Indigenous. Uh, A report by the Ontario Human Rights Commission found that Black kids were admitted into care just over two times higher than other children. One of the worst ways, and this might be a blind spot for a lot of people, is think about turning 18 as a foster kid because... That's when you age out of the system. And at 18, you don't have any necessary um, great parents to throw your party or celebration. You're getting uh, essentially an invitation into the world um, without, you know, any help. 18, that's it. You're out. You know, one of the things that frustrates me about this is whenever we talk about uh, indigenous kids being taken, people say, you know, residential school's done. That's in the past. You guys should get over that. Uh, as a people, we make up between 5 to 6% of Canada's population, but we're representing almost 50% of the foster care. No, they are still stealing our kids from us and, and doing it now at a higher rate than they did in residential schools. There's far more Indigenous children in foster care now than were in residential schools at the peak uh, of that time. So when people say this is in the past, no, no, Canada, this is a problem today. When you take a look at it through a mental health lens, the thing that stands out to me is that, yes, there's food and shelter, uh, you know, hopefully in equitable ways inside of foster care and in, inside of, of housing. But when you take a look at mental health, a lot of these kids are, are removed from family because of, of traumatic episodes that are happening within family. And so you put them somewhere else and there's no supports for mental health, not for the family that's bringing them in and not for them. And so it's one of the needs that's little to zero in terms of meeting. And it's not a priority. I find that interesting. We take these kids in with this trauma and this pain and complex trauma, and we raise them away from supports or family. And then we launch them into the world at 18, still having not dealt with the traumas of being taken from your family or what happened initially within home and within right. family. And the fact that it's not funded, the fact that there's no support there for them is a huge miss. And how do you go to university? How do you, like, where do you come home to uh, when, you know, how do you fund it? Where do you go at Christmas break? Like it is insane to think of somebody at 18 just being handed a garbage bag with their stuff and saying, good luck, make it in the world. And by the way, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Oh yeah, I love that one. And and then when they they get into trouble, you know, legal health issues, mental health issues, um, wonder why, why can't they just get it together? Why can't these people, why can't those people just figure it out? Well, you know, these are the these are the reasons right here. You know, there's a there's a huge disparity and, and they're being forgotten and not, and not helped at a crucial time too. Remember when you were 18? Gosh, did I not have anything together? I did not have anything together, and I and I, I was good. Can you imagine starting off 18 in in a place like this and having to? Uh, what a huge transition. No, I don't think I cut my apron strings till I was about 28. <laughs> so, I mean, I had moved out, but I knew that that. That safety net was there for me all the time when I got in trouble, when I made a bad decision. Mommy and daddy were going to help me figure it out um, to be uh, totally on my own from that age. Good Lord, I wouldn't be where I am now, I'll tell you that. And let's talk about 
uh, quality of care within the foster care mm. system. So, Jamar, you read some startling stats off the top. I don't have stats, but I do have stories. And I do have, I remember watching families um, who would take in kids, and they were Indigenous in our city that would come into foster care. And you could see the disparity in treatment. I could see the clothes on their kids versus the clothes on the Indigenous kids that were not clean, that did not fit. Uh, I could see the the way they were spoken to, the way that they were cared for or not cared for. And it wasn't equitable. It didn't match. And I remember watching that as a kid and I could see it. I also remember wondering, where are the adults around to say, uh, hey, you're not taking proper care of these kids that you've been put in charge of? That you volunteered to, to be in charge of. I'm not saying that's every because I also know some really great foster homes and families that really care and are passionate about about uplifting and support. But I've seen it and I think we all have known the stories and it is heartbreaking to think that these kids are not only on their own but they're also alone. Definitely one of the uh, the uh, parts of society that are, are need a light shone onto them. Uh, because they're, you know, they're kids and we can't forget kids. So uh, I'm excited to hear these stories. It should be very, very uh, informational and therapeutic. But a disclaimer for everyone, it's important to note that podcasts are not a form of medical treatment. They should not be seen as a substitute for therapy or medication. Uh, if you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, please consult a mental health provider to get that, that help and care. And to kick things off today, we're going to start with Tony Smith. He's an outspoken advocate and he's a voice of change. And he grew up in what many people called the house of horrors. I've always been tough. I've always been not showing my emotions, but uh, it was uncontrollable. And I I said to him that I'm keeping my promise. You will not be forgotten. I said that I'm going to let it be known what happened to him. That he didn't die in vain. I love you. You've just heard the raw emotions of Tony Smith at his friend's gravesite during his interview with W5's 2012 documentary called The Throwaway Children. Tony Smith is a former resident of the Nova Scotia Home for Colored Children, an orphanage set up by the province to accept orphaned and abandoned black children back in 1921. But what was supposed to be a safe haven turned into a home with multiple stories of extreme abuse and neglect. Here to talk about his time at the home is Tony Smith. Welcome to the show, Tony. Thank you very much for having me. Um, it is beautiful to hear a voice from home. I am always lonesome for the for the East Coast. Um, and as much as I love the East Coast, though, there, there have been a number of horror stories when it comes to your people and mine. Um, so can you take us back to the day that you were taken to the Home for Colored Children and why you were sent there? Um, uh, the day was uh, 1965 in August. Um, I just had turned five years old a month earlier, and I was coming home from the commons, uh, swimming in the pool. And I noticed on the way home that my uh, mother, stepmother, who I thought was my biological mother, was walking up the street. I was uh, living with her and, and um, my sister, with my biological father. And when I yelled to her, she kept going. And I thought that was odd. But by the time I got home, I noticed there was a police officer at the front door of the apartment, as well as uh, my my sister in the police car. I hid for a while, but then I mustered up the courage to inquire because I, I found out later I was always defensive of my sister. And when I did, I asked the police, what are you doing with my uh, sister? And they said, oh, you're Tony. I was just going to go for a ride. Would you like to come along? And I said, no. And they offered me $100 if I was to get in the car. They were just going to go to the store. So I knew what money was, and I got in the car, and 
And then we uh, passed a store that I'm familiar with in, in the community and we started taking this long ride and my sister started getting, uh, started crying and getting anxious. And I tried to hold my composure until I actually uh, got into the, the pillars of the, this uh, place called the Nova Scotia Home for Colored Children. And as we drove up this long driveway around back uh, to go into the kitchen, um, the police officers took us in there. And then all of a sudden a lady came by and said that uh, you can just leave me here. I'll take, take it from here. And then all my anxieties uh, came and hit me at once. And I took off running, not knowing where I was running to in this big place I'd never been in. But I heard my sister crying and I, and I came back to console her. So that was the very first day that I was uh, placed into Nova Scotia Home for Colored Children and placed into care. And did you have any reason or any idea like why they were taking you? Did they tell you anything? Yeah, um, I, as I said, I, I was living with my uh, stepmother and my biological father, who's black, and, and she was white. Uh, my father was a Canadian boxer champion and ranked top 10 in the world, and uh, I guess very popular with the ladies. Uh, he ended up having 23 kids that he knows of. And during the time I was living with them, uh, he was still seeing my biological mother, and that caused problems uh, for me as a kid. And where he worked with the CN Rail, the, the run from Halifax to Montreal was a three-day uh, event that he would be gone. That's when they, a lot of the neglect uh, took place that I would wake up in the morning, even if I had breakfast or not, because I didn't usually didn't, wasn't fed properly. I would go to family and relatives and they would ask me if I had my breakfast, dinner and supper. And I would say no, because I would eat whenever I could, because I didn't know when the next meal was coming. Uh, one of my um, aunts on my father's side wanted to take us, but she had a large family herself. And especially back then, all families were pretty large. So she didn't want to see the neglect go on, and she contacted Children's Aid Society, and that's how I became a member or a board of the Children's Aid Society. So what was life like in those young years living there? Uh, well, it was very traumatic for me and, and, and my sister. Um, we didn't know what was going on, of course, as any kind of kid being taken away from their family and not knowing and not seeing them and not understanding what's happening. Uh, that's, that's bad enough in and of itself. I kept to myself, and the only person I really associated with was my sister, but we were always segregated. There was the boys' uh, room, the girls' room, and, and the sleeping quarters, and the time that we usually got together was usually when we were outside. And when we were outside, I always looked forward to seeing her, and, and I would play with her. And then, of course, it was the pecking order and bullying and fighting. I didn't know what that was, and I didn't really care to entertain it. But then one day somebody started to beat on my sister and I went after this uh, kid and I was protecting her. And I guess I lost it, that the staff had to pull me off this individual and not knowing. But then uh, I guess I started to move up a little bit in the pecking order that people say, well, this guy can fight. But um, I remember after a couple of years, uh, one day coming out and, and my sister wasn't there and they said that she was sick. And then the next day she wasn't there and the staff said she was sick. And it was the third day that I found out that she was actually no longer living in the home and she was taken away, um, uh, adopted by uh, this family. And that was devastating to me because then that's the last link of family I had and I was totally isolated and alone. Not even a chance to say goodbye. No, I never had a chance to say goodbye at all. And um, we were always hungry in the home. Uh, we didn't eat properly. Um, Whenever we did grace, uh, no, we, before we sat down, we would have to do grace. And there's toast or bread on, on the table on the plate. We weren't allowed to touch until after we, we said grace. And once you said grace, then it was a free-for-all, like wild animals fighting to get whatever they can. And we always had a habit of eating very fast, uh, covering our food and, and making sure other people don't take your food. And so there was a lot of uh, physical abuse. Uh, there was games being played. 
uh, they used to make us fight, uh, you know, one another, uh, best friends. And if you pretend to fight, uh, you would get a beating. Um, it, you had to beat the other person convincingly and make them cry where the fight was over. But that wasn't the worst part of it. The worst part of it was being teased all week by the, the other kids to have this rage to come back and, and, and fight harder. And um, I didn't like what was going on. I know I was very young and, and, and something to me said it was wrong. And I had the upper hand of the, my friend that they wanted me to fight, but I chose not to fight. And by chosen not to fight, you would get a beating from the staff right then. And if it's in the spring or summertime and you're outside, you would have to go pick a switch and it had to pass the test. Uh, if you brought an old branch that broke, you'll get another beating and then you have to go back and get the switch where it had to bend with that whipping uh, kind of sound. Um, so with, with that, there was a lot of uncertainty. Uh, there, there was things that we were told that we were ever to speak about the way that we were treated, that we would get severely punished. So that's basically how the normal days were for me as a kid living in that institution. And I mean, how do you even figure out what your values are? How to, how to, how to grow into a man? Sounds like it was just all violence. Well, for me, there was an additional uh, target because I'm fear complected. <clears throat> and when I went to the home for the first time, after being there for a while, they said that you don't belong here. You're not black, you're white. And so they took me out of the colored home. They put me to a white orphanage at the Beath House in Halifax. And after being there for a couple of weeks, I mean, I didn't mind being there. I, I was treated a lot better. I was eating properly, sleeping. Nobody was beating me. But after a couple of weeks being there, they said that you don't belong here. You're not white, you're black. And they put me back into the colored home. And so then it was because you're fair complected, they would get other kids to fight you to because you think you're better than black people. And if you were dark complected, they called you awful names and, 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 and would get other kids to beat you. You had to pass the brown paper bag tests by your own people to be black and beautiful. You had to be that color. Just unbelievable. So again, that's another identity problem where you don't fit in, you don't have family. Um, you're second class as a black person in society, and now you're second class amongst your own people. So you, you just didn't know where you fit in. And you did have a friend there named Anthony Langford, which you talk about. Can you tell us about Anthony? Anthony Langford was my best friend. Uh, he was a young guy um, with a heart condition. And oftentimes he would be going in and out the hospital to get surgery done. And we would always know when he was going in and when he was returning. And when I knew that he was returning, I would fake that I'm sick so I can spend time with him in the clinic before he joined the general population. And he was known as hands off, you don't touch him because of his illness. Uh, one day, it was a Sunday, it was in February, and um, we had dessert, which was a rarity. And um, we ate ours, but Tony wanted, and I call him Tony, but his, Anthony wanted uh, to save his for a show. It was Tom Jones or Ed, Ed Sullivan, I forget which one it was. But we were in the boys' playroom, and oftentimes the, the staff that's supposed to supervise us would leave us alone, close the door, and just tell us not to make any noise. But uh, this one particular kid who was the, the bigger and stronger uh, wanted his cake, uh, Anthony refused to give it to him. He took the cake and then he put Anthony in the corner and he made the other residents throw books and boots at him because it was, as I said, February. So our winter boots was in there. We had uh, books with Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, Hard Shell. And when that was happening, uh, Anthony was trying to defend himself, but I was also trying to get out and, and tell the staff, but I was held back and I was muzzled. Um, after Anthony was not responding uh, to the objects being hit, on him and, and slumped over, uh, there was a lot of concerns by the kids in that room and, and they went and got the staff and the staff came and uh, rushed only to the hospital and uh, after a few days he had passed away. And we told the staff what had happened and we were 
threatened that if we were ever to speak this lie, that we would be severely beaten. So for me, at that age, I was seven. It showed me that they can do whatever they want. They can even take your life, that his life was nothing. Therefore, my life was nothing. But I, I vowed one day that I was going to tell the story. I just didn't know how. You know, Tony, that story is horrifying. And I think equally as horrifying to me is that you are talking to me about your childhood when you were seven. And you want to yes. talk about the long-term effects? You use the term general population. I mean, a prison term as you're talking about your childhood. If, yes. if, if that's not telling on what this does to the psyche over time, um, I'm, I'm just so happy that you're having this opportunity to, to tell Anthony's story. And, and recently you, you came out with a story about possibly finding bodies buried in the site. When we first started telling our stories, a lot of people were trying to silence us and saying that we weren't telling the truth. But when we actually went to the court system, we don't know each other. And we're all telling the very same stories, different decades. And one story that we always talked about and we always heard was that there were babies buried on the property. So just recently, after the inquiry's over and they were having the 100 celebration of the institution, it sparked some people in the black community the wrong way. And somebody had tracked me down, the original person and family who uh, stated that the mother had worked there. Uh, would often come home and talks about the atrocities she witnessed us taking and that she came home crying one time, quitting her job, and she said she knows where the babies are buried. So that family member had contacted me, voices, and stated that they are willing to come forward publicly to point out where the babies are buried. So I have been working intensely with the professor that has been doing the work in Shubenacadie, and, and we're going to get together and discuss this more. But these are not babies in the same way that was taken from the homes and placed into the institution like the indigenous and residential schools. These were babies that were conceived by the young girls that were there and they didn't want anybody to know. Uh, as a result of rape, I assume. Yeah. Is Anthony Langford's spirit uh, got me to speak, which got other people to speak. And now full circle, we're going to be able to find our angels and release, and release them back to where they need to be. I, I hope that that is successful. I hope that, uh, I hope that you're able to bring them home for sure. Now, you tell a story like that, I can't help but think that now as a, as a man in your middle age, you, you had to have dealt with some mental fallout from that. Can you talk about the kind of impact that that had on you? Well, it always had a negative impact on me of being a loner, isolated, low self-worth, low self-esteem. Uh, I was the most ugliest person ever. I was never going to amount to nothing. These are the things and the demons that I heard all my life. And I knew nothing differently because I went into care from birth the first six months in foster care until my mother had a place. I lived with her and my biological grandmother for six months. And I lived with my father and everything that was given to me, like even when I lived with the foster family, it was not good. I mean, it was a bad environment. And they always threatened me that if I was to tell what was going on there, they'll send me back to the colored home. So this was normal to me. And the only time I found a connection was when I was dealing with issues of racism when I worked in government and my health started to deteriorate. I had a lot of stress and anxiety and then had major depression. And then after speaking with a, a psychiatrist, he started making a correlation that I was suffering from post-traumatic stress because of what I went through as a kid in comparison to what I'm going through now as an adult. But I never really had treatment to target that particular issue. Uh, all I know is that when I was able to go public about Anthony and, and when we went and had W5 um, do a documentary, Throw Away Children, 
And I found out about a month before the documentary that where Anthony was buried. And I went there along with my dog and it was very emotional for me. And then when it came to taking a W5 up to the gravesite, I thought I would, I had things under control and I didn't realize uh, I broke down. I broke down all my emotions left me and, but it wasn't sadness. It was, um, joy that, you know, I, I made a vow and promise that, uh, he would never die in vain and to have his name and, and to be there is like, uh, I fulfilled my promise. So for me, that was, a uh, the last thing I think that I, that I need to let go. It sounded like, uh, Anthony had a tough little life, but at least he had one true good friend. Yes. Did you ever get um, therapy to to help you through some of these issues? I, I, I never had it in, in the traditional way. Um, I, I, I found it uh, when I started to find my voice and I started speaking public because I was so ashamed of being a foster kid. I was so ashamed of being an orphan. I was because of the stereotypes and how society looks at you. Um, well, I remember going to, uh, I used to box and, um, this trainer took me to Vegas to train for a month and he seen that something was wrong with me and, and I felt comfortable to speak to him. And my biggest problem has always been rejection. I've been rejected by my parents and I've been rejected by this foster family and it, it bothered me. And he said, Tony, from the sounds of it, you don't have a problem. They have a problem. And for as long as you try to correct their problem, you will always have a problem. Meaning that you can't change people. And now here I have a, a young lady, beautiful woman, pregnant with my child, and I'm putting them second because I, I, I'm, I'm facing rejection by this other foster family who is supposed to be my family. And then I realized, what am I doing? Because I have a family. What I always want is right here that would love me unconditionally. But again, because I, I had such low self-esteem about myself and I could never understand why this beautiful woman who is now my wife, we've been together uh, 43 years and we have a son. 39 RCMP and a daughter, 32 vice principal and teaching. And, and, you know, I couldn't believe it. Like, why would you be interested in somebody, somebody like me, that I'm nothing, I'm, I'm, I'm ugly, you know, and, and you're so beautiful. It, it really bothered me. I couldn't understand why anybody would even want to, you know, love me, little alone, you know, like me, little alone love me kind of thing. So those were internal demons that you had to deal, deal with. But as time went by, the more I was able to speak about these things, the more I realized that I had absolutely no control of my life when I grew up and I'm not taking responsibility for these abusers and perpetrators because then they'll continue to win. You know, I think the most remarkable thing in all that is that you had absolutely no example of what being a father is all about. And here you have raised these two successful children. They say uh, living good is the best revenge. I think you've got it. Yeah. Well, I, I learned what not to do by them. Now, Tony, after you went public with your story, many other former residents came forward with their own stories of abuse. This ended in a class action lawsuit, an apology from the former premier of Nova Scotia, and a public inquiry that released its findings in November of 2019. The inquiry was also a first of its kind in Canada to take a restorative approach. How did this process help in your healing? I went public in 1998, September of 1998, and in 2012, um, we met October up uh, a black community uh, 
Upper Hamlet's Plains in the Manu Baptist Church, and it was a four-day event. And that's the first time we got together. And you can imagine this, the, the, the stress, the anxiety, the pain, the guilt, the shame. You can see it in everybody's body. But after that four-day event, because where I worked in mental health and, and addictions, I was able to set the environment for it to be safe. And um, everybody found their voices. There was a, laugh, a lot of laughing, crying, and praying, and singing. And then we realized we're no longer victims, that we're survivors. And then a year later, you know, having another uh, reunion and gathering and up in Truro. And um, to see the transformation of the, the former residents from when we first met to the next time we met with her, there's eye contact, their chest is up, their, the tone of the voice and their confidence. And that now when they started speaking, their families are so proud. Their kids want to do reports and essays about their experiences. And they're looking at heroes instead of victims. It, it was amazing. So that this inquiry was completely different. The United Nations had done a study all across Canada in regards to racism in the various provinces. And they said that Nova Scotia is worse for racism because we've been here the longest. And that not only, uh, but the good thing about Nova Scotia is that they have the restorative inquiry. Not only is it good for Nova Scotia, it's good for all across Canada. So the process that we took in place of not name and blame and shame and actually brings people to the table where if they do say the wrong thing, they're not being jumped on. So it gives them an, an environment where they can speak freely so we can learn from one another with the common uh, goals and solutions. And it was the most empowering uh, process and feelings that I had uh, through this here inquiry and also for former residents because they were the, the people who set the tone. Tony, in my community, the only true value you have are your stories. And uh, I just want I just want to say to you that uh, I see you, I acknowledge you, and I'm truly honored that you would share your story with us today. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. And, and uh, I can tell you that the people who reached out to me are a... a <laughs> AMI books, uh, the, the compassion and, and the support and the understanding is just unbelievable. So I'd like to thank all of you. Thanks again, Tony. What a conversation, you two. That was uh, in so many ways. I felt like I was talking to the ghost of my father. What did you think about that conversation? I'm just genuinely floored at, at the treatment of children. I can't believe it. I can't believe people would treat children like this. But I'm also like... um amazed that these children become such remarkable adults um, because you don't, you don't have to become that type of person. It could really, really go badly. Um, and he's, he's a remarkable person. But I, I, once again, I just got to say, I cannot believe people treat children like this. And going back to the numbers that we talked about off the top of the show, like the statistics around them, that his story is, heartbreaking on so many levels at every chapter, but there are tens of thousands of kids who have and experience this complex trauma in every chapter and every place that's supposed to catch them does not, it knocks them down again. And so, yeah, to your point, Jamar, I think one of the things that stays with me is when Tony was describing his life now and what he has now and how he views it compared to what he had. Um, I find that just I find that incredible. And also his um, willingness to share it, to go back there, to make sure that he is a voice for people who he knows and has lived that, that don't have one. You know, and sometimes I get so frustrated when people talk about violence and they, you know, they'll criticize when a, when a man um, has that ability to, uh, to defend himself physically, but they don't understand that for a lot of these people, from the time they were babies, 
they had to either learn how to fight or die. I mean, that, that was the option. That's how they made it into adulthood. And, and the fact that you can then come out of that and with a gentle hand and an open heart raise children that grow on to be teachers and, and RCMP officers, and in my case, a lawyer, um, it, they're, they're just remarkable. I just think the, uh, the average Canadian would have never survived the first couple of weeks, let alone been able to come through and, and thrive. And we are very lucky that that folks will come and share those stories with us. Just speaking about sharing these stories, you know, when talking about matters of race and mental health and just the, the conditions of society, we're, we're learning through this podcast that the conversations have to have so much nuance. You cannot just paint a broad stroke against people without understanding truly the nuance of all the little conditions that have happened throughout their journeys. And we, this time right now that we're spending to speak to these people is so important because I'm learning stuff through this podcast that I, I'm ne- I've never heard anything like this in my life. It's, it's, uh, it's just tremendous. And, and it, it really, this is the only way you're going to affect change properly is if you really understand the nuances of what people have gone through. That's why the name from where we stand, right? Everybody is standing from, a different place with all those experiences underneath them. Yeah. You know, Tony's story took place in the 60s, but as our next guest tells us, there's still work to be done when it comes to mental health within Canada's foster care system. Natasha Reimer Okimau joins us next. Ninety percent of children in Manitoba's child welfare system are Indigenous, and our next guest was one of them. Natasha Reimer Okimau spent most of her growing up years first as an adoptee and then moving around foster homes across the province till she aged out at 21. But none of those placements were with a BIPOC family, leaving her disconnected with her language and culture while also impacting her mental health. Natasha, thank you so much. Welcome. How are you? Thank you. And thank you for having me. I'm great. I'm grateful to be on here today. I'm excited to have you because there is in BIPOC communities, and I'll just speak from the Black perspective for a little bit, a lot of discussion about transracial adoption and, you know, I guess the issues around it and, and how it affects people. I'm very interested to hear it from a person who actually has been through it and get your firsthand account from it. So thank you so much for just, you know, lending your story to us. Natasha, you were separated from your biological family at a very young age. Then you experienced a transracial adoption where you were adopted by a family that was white when you identify as black and indigenous. Yeah. So growing up, I, when I was adopted, I, I remember those moments when I, when I was adopted, um, cause I remember the family coming to visit me at my foster home. I would have been like around four ish and they took me back when, when I was, my adoption was finalized. They took me back to their community and their community was reflective of what they looked like, which was non-BIPOC. They were, they were, they were a white family and growing up as like the only like brown kid, like in grade school and not being able to find anyone that like looked like me, not at home, not at school, not at ballet class. It was hard. And people and kids were kind of mean. They would point out that I looked different and why did I look different? And it made me feel like I just, I just never really fully belonged there in a sense. Cause right away, the first thing that would always come up would be like, well, you're, you're brown and your family, not so much. Um, what happened? And did, did your parents leave you? And it always reminded me that like, 
like something something was something was wrong with me like what like, and that I should be like these people who have white parents and who look like them and it really messed up my idea of like sense of self and how I saw myself how I saw where I belonged like in this community in the world and it just as the years kind of went on the pointing out of the fact that I look different turned more into bullying and people making jokes and my parents who were my adoptive parents being like it's okay sticks and stones will break your bones but like names will never hurt you but like names do hurt you names do hurt when people are telling you to be ashamed and embarrassed of who you are and so yeah that was kind of like how my trans adoption kind of went it was I never really found like um photo peace at home and like a sense of belonging there and I definitely didn't feel it outside my home and just something that comes to mind as I hear you talk, like I just, you know, you can't make every community like look the same. You know, not every community is going to be a black community or an indigenous community or, or whatever. Like communities are they what they are, right? And there will be inherently yeah. communities that are just have a lot of white people, right? Yeah. Um, but, but I would hope in these communities, they just teach their children that, hey, this is what our town looks like, but not everyone in the world looks like us. And you got to kind of be ready for that. And, and when you encounter people that look differently from you, you got to, Treat them nicely. I, I would hope that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I hoped for that too. It just, I really wish that would have happened like growing grow, growing up because teachers and that stuff and parents were so quick to um, excuse that kind of behavior when kids or others were point, pointing it out. And it's also really like, it's, it's even more rude when, oh, it's, it's rude all around, but I find it so frustrating also when, they catch their kid doing it, and then and, and then they join on on it. This happened to you? Yeah, I, I, remember, I remember. I was at ballet. I was I did ballet for several several years. So I was um, I would have been about around seven or eight, and this this girl was saying that I couldn't I couldn't play with them because outside our ballet class we were, we were we all did like these like little exercises and games, and she said that I could I couldn't I couldn't play play with them. They they said no uh, black piggies. We were playing in ballet class. We were, we were doing like through a little pig dance thing. I can't remember, but she said no black piggies were allowed. And her, and I was so upset. And I went to my, my mom and she was my adopted mother. And I went to tell her what, like what happened and saying that no black piggies are allowed to play. And my, and my mom was like, that's absurd. <laughs> like she was frustrated. And when my, when my mom went to go over to the kid and be like, like Tash, Tasha can play with you. Her, her mom was like, Oh, she didn't mean anything. And my, my, my mom was like, well, she hurt Tasha's feelings, and and then her mom was like, "Well, speaking of Tasha, um, where is she even from? Like, is she is, is she even from here?" Wow. And it was just like it was, and it was just like, and I just remember like my mom <laughs> at that at, at that like point in time, like we we ended up leaving, like we we were we were I didn't go ballet that day. The ballet was done for that day. <sighs> it's so painful. I mean, those are like the toughest times for kids because you're already having just because of childhood having, you know, identity issues, but then you throw on the the racial issues and the feelings of isolation on top of your your personal situation with uh, being in foster homes. Um, that's tremendous. Yeah. So it's a lot. Yeah. Um, I'm told that, you, so your adoption eventually fell through when you were 14. Yeah, my adoption eventually fell through when I was 14 and then I was returned back to the state and then I continued to bounce kind of like from home to home in rural Manitoba for a few, for a few years before they brought me to the city, which is Winnipeg, Manitoba. 
For those who don't know, you're, you're placed in foster homes and then you hope for a family to formally adopt you, making you their child legally, correct? That's how it works, right? Yeah, usually that's how it works. So when I was younger, like when I, was, when I got adopted at four, yeah. um, that was the hope. But when they put me in as in like as when I went when I returned at fourteen, yeah. the, at that point it turns more to just stay in the, stay alive, stay in the system until you turn eighteen. So um, you can take care of yourself. You, you, the option of trying to find you a permanent family and a, a stable unit is not is not really something that they talk about and that's not really an option for you oh, it was an option for me or many many of the other kids who I was in care with who were who were the same age as me we were kind of just told to keep our head down stick out stay out of trouble go to school we'll be 18 soon and that's it so um, most of my short term placements um, in rural Manitoba were like all non indigenous and so the first one um, they dropped me off there for the summer while, while things were getting figured out. And yeah, it's kind of, you. it's kind of like you have a room in somebody's house, but you're not really, like, you're not really part of their family. They don't really want to include you anything. They just want you just to, like what they did to us was they had all these DVDs and would be like, hey, watch these DVDs, sit there, kind of be quiet. Your social worker, your social worker will be back in like three weeks. And you just kind of count down the days. Can you explain to us as a child when you're just moving around from place to place like this, like what are you thinking in your mind about yourself and life and just like what it, just what, what are you thinking? You feel scared and you feel like you have nowhere that you belong and you don't know what to do. You don't know, like you, you feel powerless. You feel completely defeated and, there were also like I'll mention like there are times like where I would like, try and like advocate for myself and say like I don't I don't I don't want this like I, I don't I don't like being here. It 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 doesn't it didn't matter. I felt I felt like because none of, none of my issues or my concerns were ever addressed or taken taken in to like taken and brought forward and presented for other options. It's also anxiety inducing because because you don't know how long you're gonna be somewhere. Like right. usually, like when you go on vacation, you you, you plan. Okay, I'm gonna go to let's say for example, I'm gonna go to Mexico for this one week trip. You have that planned. You know, you know you're gonna get there on this day. You know you're gonna leave on that day. But when you're living your life in this limbo, you don't know if this like place you're staying at is for a day, a week, a month, and you also don't know when you're gonna to be told you, you gotta go. And when you get told you gotta go, it's not like you get a day's notice. You get you get like you are told like that you have an hour, you have an hour or half an hour to pack and get and get yourself and you're on to the next town, to the next placement. It's so much uncertainty. And it's you just like live your life on I for me, I have lived I lived my life on edge. It's really unbelievable to hear because this is like the worst time for this to happen for a person, like during those developmental years where you need stability just to kind of get a grasp for you know, what life's all about, right? Can you tell me about um, what you knew about your biological parents at all? Or did you have any knowledge or curiosity about um, their circumstances? Yeah, I was naturally always curious because, as I said, I grew up in this home where everyone looked differently than me. And every time I'd ask anything about them, they'd say, when you're 18, you can find out. When you're 18, you'll be 
you'll be you'll be the legal adult age here in Manitoba. You'll be able to access your file, and you'll be able to find out whatever it is you want to find out. But up until then, I didn't know that I was I didn't know that my father was uh, Jamaican. I didn't know that my mother was from was Cree First Nation. I didn't know any of that. I just spent my life just knowing that I was a person of color, but I didn't know from where. And I didn't know where my roots extended to. I didn't know any of that. And it it was hard because I felt so, so angry and so frustrated and so confused. And I felt like, is the reason why they're not telling me because I did something bad? Did, did something happen? And it just... Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was a dark time. Wow. So you said, I, I, your quote is really, um, it's, it's, a, it's a, a very strong quote here. The system stole your identity. Uh, did you say this to your, your, your biological um, family when you eventually met them? Yeah, with my sisters and my family. Yeah, I, they did steal my identity. They did. So I did turn 18 eventually and I, ended up filing those paperwork paperwork to get my file to find out the information about um, what happened. And when I got my file, everything was redacted. Nothing in the file other than my name was visible. It was like literally, it was like looking at a black, just a, a sheet of paper was all blacked out. And then my name and my age at certain points, but it, that was it. I went back to my adoptive mother and I ended up getting her to show me a few documents and I saw, she, she gave me the doc, the document that was my adoption order and essentially um, changed my, they changed my name. And oh. in that moment, and that's where I feel like my identity and who I was before was stolen. And that's how I, and everything around that since my adoption or trusting over my name is now in with my family's my adopted family's names but i felt like that whole life before that just got taken away from me and tossed away in a pile of documents that are all redacted and that is why and why i still feel that my identity was completely stolen so i decided to go off the tidbits of information that i had from my adopted mother and then I was able to through those tidbits I found my biological sisters who lived out in the east in Toronto area and we pieced together all our little bits of information that we got from our adoptions together and then we ended up embarking on a little Facebook journey and finding our our biological relatives what was that like when you finally uh, met up with your biological parents I remember being so so scared I was, I remember like wondering if I, if I should do it or if I should just leave them alone. But then I told myself, I'm like, you've waited like how many years for this moment? Just do it. And I did it. And it was, it was emotional because I, I just felt like all these years have passed and my, my biological mother seemed very trapped or not very trapped, but seemed to remember me as the, the little tyke that she had when way back in the day, but now I'm fully grown. And it was, there was just a lot, there's there's just a lot of years to like make up for it. It's like seeing a stranger that looks identical to you. And there was so much, 
it's just like I can't it's just a wave of emotions like you feel so happy but then you also feel you're also nervous and you're also like but very curious and then for me one of the main feelings I felt was I just felt very heartbroken I just felt heartbroken that this had to be a secret for me for all these years that that this ache and this void that I felt inside could have just been like resolved by just allowing me just to talk to them know of them but to keep me in the dark it felt like it did way more damage and that's how I and that's how I how I how I truly believe that withholding that from me did way more damage but knowing also came with its own challenges because you are now getting to know these people who you never had any prior relationship with they look like you they laugh like you they sound like you but it's then at the end of the day they're still strangers so you eventually aged out of the system at 21 and you started an initiative called foster up it's a peer support group for youth aging out of the foster care system You're also the director of youth in Care Canada, Manitoba region. Before we wrap up, could you tell us what are some of the misconceptions that you'd like to break about kids who grew up in the foster care system and what you'd like to change about that system? So growing up in foster care, there was a lot of stigma towards how us kids in care were viewed and how how we also viewed ourselves. Um, And those those things that were like, those false stereotypes were that we were bad kids, that we wouldn't amount to anything. I actually even had a teacher tell me that kids like me, foster kids, don't get happy endings. Kids like me who don't have families are not afforded the, the luxury or the privilege of being able to be whoever we want to be. And I thought that was like so discouraging and so harmful to even say to anybody. And I... Remember that teacher t- telling me that because this this was in grade twelve, and I was just like, "No, I'm 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 gonna do it. Like I'm gonna go off to university. I'm gonna go off to grad school. I'm gonna be who I want to be." As I said before, I'm the oldest of six children. Um, I would make sure that like I would make sure that families are s- together, siblings are together. Like me and my sisters are sixteen, seventeen months apart from each other. We're not that far apart. I would make sure that families were able to, if they if they couldn't stay with their parents, that siblings could could, be, could stay together. I would urge for more supports to be given to families in situations like where it's safe to do so, to help learn to how to rebuild and work through the issues that are presenting harm or risks for the children. That's some areas that I would end. Other areas that I would also would be if you're going to remove a child from their home, from from their family, look at options of keeping them in the community that they're from. Look at, look at options to keep them in their in school. Like 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 changing schools and that stuff is also it takes a toll, and having to up and go from new school to new school is a lot. And also ensuring that if those like if that can't be done as well, but one of the most important things is regardless of all those other options too, is making sure the kid has the option to be connected to culture and their community and not to separate them and displace them and hope that they'll forget and be able to adapt to whatever the CFS agent agent wants at at that time. That is what I would urge for. And I'd also urge for more, this is the last one, would be allowing kids in and from care to have 
a voice at the table on decisions on decisions that are being impacted or decisions that impact them. Yes. Because yes. so often their voices are silenced silence. We have adults claiming that they know what's best for these for these individuals without actually taking the time to build a relationship with these kids to be like, hey, like like, like what do you like what do you need to feel supported right now? Like what would help you like like how can I what what's one thing I could do like right now in this moment that would that would help you? Like just taking the time to yes. not just see these kids as a case file, but to recognize that we are all unique, we are different, we all we all deal with trauma, we all deal with changes differently, and not to have a pan approach when it comes to dealing with um the, with, with these with the youth you care. I mean, as we talked about in the in the beginning of the conversation, like at a very early age, you had a very clear perception of what was going on and mm-hmm. what was wrong with how you would be tr- being treated. I don't see why you couldn't let a, a child advocate for themselves on what they're going through. You're you're one hundred percent right on that. And your mental health currently, Natasha, how how are you doing these days? It comes and goes in waves. It I think that like even though I'm age out of the system and that stuff, there's still things that pop up that that trigger and bring bring back flashbacks but i take it day by day i'm been very blessed and very fortunate to be able to still connect with my therapist that i had when i was 14 in foster care so i've been very i i, I see them every single week and i i'm very grateful that i still have that relationship to um, help me through yeah the different waves of life Thank you so much for your story. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for your 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 candor. Just thank you so much. This is really, really, um, really good that you shared this. So thank you, Natasha. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me today. And thank you so much for making it's a really good experience. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you and big up to Natasha for the courage and the 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 honesty about what she's gone through. You know, foster care is one of those things that we hear about it all the time, but very rarely do we get a very um, detailed account of the different changes and the different stages of the process that a child goes through and how it affects them personally, mentally, socially. Um, And in this case, uh, having your identity stolen from you and you have really no say in that whole process it was just really great to hear about that because that needs to change. Someone needs to advocate for these children because, I mean, Lord, getting to the point where you're an adult and you just don't even know who you are, honestly who you are, and you had no choice in, in, that, in that erasure, is, is, uh, it's, it's uh, mind-blowing and it's really unfair in my opinion. Candy, she touched and Jamar touched on something you talk about all the time, which is knowing who you are. And hearing her story of always being told when you're 18, you'll find out. When you're 18, you'll find out. And then when she's old enough to get these papers and have everything redacted except for her name and her birthday, she still didn't know who she was. So she's talking about having that that idea of having your identity stolen uh, and going through this the system where you don't have an identity, you don't know who you are, and also her really clear description of living in this constant state of flux, of never knowing what is stable, of never knowing when you can just be, and and giving half an hour of when you have to pack your bags and go. You know, it makes, it, consistently listening to these interviews, I think of, you know, we call it foster care, but boy, a lot of times it seems like the care is really missing. Yeah, I mean, there was a couple of things that just struck me to the core on this interview. One was, um, I'm, I'm thrown away by my family because when you're a child, that's the only way that you would see it. I'm thrown away by my family. 
then I get adopted, and then I get thrown away the second time. They put me back in the system. What that must do to your mental health. And then when I think of my own childhood, because I'm sometimes asked as an Indigenous person in the success I've had in my life, oh, well, you know, how do you account for it? When I listen to Natasha's story, and I think of my own life, and I think of my pretty little pink bedroom where all my family was, and it's the bedroom I had my whole life, the land I was born on is the land that my family has lived on their whole lives, my trophies and my school pictures sat in the living room until the day both my parents died. I think I was 40 when my mother suggested that my sports trophies could be moved from the living room into my bedroom. But the little Mickey Mouse sign that said candy was still on the door of that room. And, you know, I, I knew who I was. And when my parents died, I always said, I got the legacy. The legacy are the stories. I know who I am through my family's stories, through the stories of my siblings and my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents and the land that they lived on and, and the people they loved and the people they lost. And so to say her identity was stolen is an understatement. Her very existence was stolen. They took from her the only birthright that any of us are guaranteed. And uh, the fact that she came through that started this system, did all the things that she did. uh, Incredible. Like I bow my hat to her. Uh, Just an incredible thing. And, And shame on all of us that this continues to happen and we sit back and let it happen. So many layers to this conversation. And here to help us understand a bit better, we have psychotherapist Koso Boudreau, who not only has lived experience in the foster care system, but has also found a way to help others. She's up next. Here's something to think on. Mental health is the greatest unmet need for children and teens in foster care. That's the findings of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And we heard some of that play out in real life through stories that were shared with us today. So here to help us understand some of the mental health impacts on foster care, why it's so important, and to try and understand why it's not met, is someone who's been through the system herself. We're speaking today to psychotherapist Kosu Boudreau. Welcome. Great to be here. Kosu, let's start there. You are a former Crown Ward yourself many years ago. How does that experience inform the work that you're doing today? Well, I think what you just said is so true that that experience of having been involved with child welfare on some level has a a deep and lifelong impact. It really is a sense of core self. And uh, as I reflect on some of the stories I've heard shared here today, I'm thinking about how, in particular, this sense of, of being othered of feeling that uh, growing up with a sense of of looking in from the outside in and how that has impacted my work, how years of watching carefully, being really attentive to people around me, partly coming out of survival strategies, has certainly influenced the fact that I'm, I'm highly attuned and empathic towards people. So it's not surprising that many of us that go into psychotherapy are, are coming from a background ourselves where we're, we're focused on, on looking at very deep inward work. 
it's not so much about the work that I do. It's really about this deep inner exploration that comes out of a, a sense of an, a, an ongoing seeking. Who am I? These sort of really fundamental existential questions. Who am I? What does my life mean? And trying to trying to understand that uh, from a place without being held within a particular cultural container. Kosu, give us an understanding of um, the mental health impacts that children in foster care have. I, I'm uh, particularly interested in just the lack of stability mm. because, you know, you're going from home to home, you're, 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 you're in a, you're in a, you're a ward of the, the crown and then you're, you know, you're here one day, one, the other, how does that manifest by the time this child becomes an adult? It is a, a very profound wounding from a developmental perspective, really the sense of ourselves, the sense of safety that we have and our identity is formed in early years. The first three years are particularly important, but the attachment wounds that are created from these ongoing disruptions in, in our primary safe space, which is our home, our family, often these reoccur multiple ways throughout not only the childhood, the experience while being in the foster care, but also later on throughout life because of these attachment wounds that develop. So the, um, the work of Gabor Matei, who works a lot with, with trauma and in particular looks at early life trauma and, and its impact, talks about how children aren't traumatized because they get hurt, but they're traumatized because they're left alone where they're hurt. And so really, these wounds are about relational wounds. These are about a sense of feeling, first of all, the shame of not feeling good enough, not feeling worthy, not feeling loved. These really core factors around that, that affect self-esteem, affect the sense of safety to be able to explore the world and be resilient and to, to take risks as we grow towards autonomy, as we get older, those things, those developmental milestones are very difficult when there is a, a core sense of, of, of fear and not being mirrored, not having been mirrored by, by loving eyes as a young person there's a difficulty in being able to internalize that sense of identity and confidence. And so it really permeates all areas of life and sense of, especially the interpersonal area, especially relationships. Let me ask you this. So people refer to care all the time as if it's like all the same experience, but there's, you know, there's the traditional foster home, there's group homes, there's homes run by institutions. Is the impact on the child the same regardless of where they end up in care? Or does that actually change the impact? Well, I think it's really interesting to look at. There's many layers. So we're talking also about racialized trauma. And there is there is definitely a sense that within care, children that are racialized also have different experience than their white counterparts. How children are uh, sort of streamed into, whether going into group homes, for instance, or going into foster homes, 
and definitely foster homes, which are in a more traditional family kind of context where there's more individual attention, there's more opportunity for the understanding of the uniqueness of each child rather than the rigidity, the institutionalization that happens with, with group homes and what Tony was talking about earlier with an an orphanage, a a larger institution, the increasingly as the environment becomes institutionalized, there's less opportunity for the kind of nurturing, the kind of recognition of the specialness of the child that is so necessary in, in, as part of that growing up process, the seeing yourself mirrored in the out, seeing the, the care and somebody seeing and understanding who you are and feeling that connection and that confidence that develops from that. So even in my experience, I was in, I, I was adopted. I'm, I'm black, I'm mixed race, black, and was adopted by a first generation white European family grew up in a rural area in Ontario. And that itself was very, very, very difficult situation. And uh, I think that even looking now at transracial adoptions and an understanding of what's involved with that and a better understanding of the culture implications, that that's a whole other set of issues in itself. But essentially there was an adoption breakdown is the technical term. And I, I became a crown ward when I was 14 and went into foster care until I was an adult. And I was in a, a foster home that started out as a more traditional family. There were biological children, and then there were a couple foster children. And it was familiar to me. It's a family context, sort of mom, dad, and the kids, and flexibility in terms of being able to navigate those relationships. But then that, that home evolved into a group home and there were, there were really significant changes in terms of the, the kind of rigidity that's involved in running uh, a more institutional like system. There have to be standard roles that apply to everybody. So yes, there are really big differences and, Unfortunately, because of the resources that are available in the in the system, in the foster care system, um, I think that being able to get ideal home environments with caring adults that are able to provide the kind of nurturing that really will have will be beneficial for the for the growth of children is difficult to find. One of the things I've picked up on a couple of times this idea of value and having having young people try to figure out what is my value when you haven't been valued. So you're trying to learn that. And I'm curious about the impact of untreated trauma on kids. What kind of mental health impacts do children who aged out of foster care have? So they're 18 years old, they're out in the world. They're trying to figure out, am I valued? Where am I valued? What's important? And and different kinds of trauma. Some of them have had sexual trauma. Some of them have had physical trauma. Some of them have had abandonment. What are the mental health impacts of children who have untreated traumas? Well, sadly, the statistics are not, they're quite dire, actually. The, the impact is tremendous. You know, it's understandable we're talking about the core sense of self impacted at a very early age and then the ongoing lack of nurturing support that's so necessary 
to be able to mature and even neurologically you know the the brain develops it needs to to know we need to know that we can be safe in order for us to to develop our nervous systems to mature to be able to self-regulate to be able to uh, learn how to manage emotions and to gradually develop autonomy and 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 uh, healthy interdependence so in so many ways the odds are stacked against these children uh, who are are not embedded in in a in some kind of environment where there's at least one consistent caring valuing caregiver now that's not to say as we've seen today that there are definitely there are definitely wonderful exceptions of people who are able to go on and to to really work towards a healthier a healthier life through you know from sort of psychological terms you know secure attachment through later relationships and through uh, developing those kinds of resources and self-valuing later in life, but but there are really strong inherent struggles. There is this sense of of being not an individual, but this kind of your state, your crown ward. So you know, you sort of the the government is your official legal guardian, and so there's somehow that sense of that you belong to the system for better or for worse. And that's a feeder system into other systems, including the criminal justice system, of course, because there's this institutionalized identity. In your work, you've uh, explored a a concept of cultural grief. Can you explain uh, that to us and like tell us how it works into this context? Yeah, it's something that I thought about a lot as a black person who had grown up in a, a white community and then later on has I've explored my identity as a black person in a number of ways. That's become very important to me. And I'm involved with a number of BIPOC groups and exploring equity diversity issues. And the term cultural grief came up in a group I was involved in. And and then I dug around a little bit and realized that actually the term cultural bereavement is something that has been researched and written about. Um, by an Australian psychiatrist, actually. His name's uh, Maurice Eisenbrook. And uh, so it's cultural bereavement as a concept has been connected with the experience, especially of immigrants and refugees who who leave their entire social, cultural identities behind. And, you know, things like language and, you know, attitudes and values, social structures, support networks, the things that make us who we are. I I think that in many ways, we are what our stories are. And those stories are the stories that are, are shared with us, that are remembered for us by the people that are around us, by our families by our extended families when we gather at holidays and the story is told of, you know, Uncle Harry and, you know, his, his illustrious history and how we're connected, you know, three generations away from 
you know, royalty or from, you know, from some sense of connection with a history and a future and that it's intermingled in a collective identity. And so being separated, being in the case of indigenous people, for instance, with a 60s scoop for indigenous people that are completely torn away from that sense of kin identity, that sense of being grounded in the the story making that creates you creates a a, a grief, a, a tremendous loss, a a kind of a death of self. When they interrupt your blood memory, you're 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 in dire straits. Koso, for the listener out there who's trying to cope with their own mental health, what kind of advice can you leave for them? There's not one path, and I I was really struck today as I was listening and, and thinking uh, about my own journey and listening to others and, and recognizing that, you know, for those of us who have been connected in some way to the system, I'm doing air quotes with my fingers as I say that, there is a, there's often a sense of, um, of system wariness you know, as I said earlier, you know, system wise, system weary. And so I think that the sense of returning to that sense of belonging in meeting, meaning is really at the core of healing. So it, it really, in many ways, it's a, it's a psycho-spiritual journey. It's a, it's a sense of being able to work with the shame, you know, the shame of feeling unwanted, feeling disconnected, feeling broken or marginalized. And that is normalized by, by being able to find yourself in community. And that community can look like a lot, a lot of different things and is very unique to each individual. You know, so it, it may, it may look like spiritual communities, for instance, you know, drumming circles or being connected with traditional indigenous practices. Um, it may be, you know, dance troops. There's a, a sense of uh, support groups. Uh, you know, we have um, affinity groups of BIPOC groups or meeting with other people who are survivors in the system or becoming advocate and involved with a community as I have with the Child Welfare Political Action Committee, numerous ways of finding yourself, but but that has to happen somehow in community. That being reaffirmed and validated. I think I'm a therapist, and certainly there is a place for therapy, and there are there are some therapies that can be very supportive, especially those that are more trauma informed and attachment focused. But in some ways, this the what has been missing in the journey of people who've been involved with the with the system, with the foster care system, is this this kind of informal mentoring, you know, uh, the sense of a uh, uh, an older, wiser, caring adult who is present in your life in a long term, where there's that that sense of continuity, the sense of they're not with me because, you know, I'm not, we're not meeting 
because, you know, it's a, it's like an agency mandate or, you know, that there's these sort of very strict limitations around time and location, but because they're in my life in a, in a sort of organic and meaningful way, and they're going to be in my life for a long time because they choose to be. And those relationships, I think, are really precious. And in some way, they don't replace the primary caregiver relationships that, you know, I wish that we all could have from a younger age. But we know now that one of the wonderful things with neuroscience is that we know that the brain and thus the whole body-mind complex can heal throughout our lifespan. And so building these kinds of experiences, even as an older youth or an adult, can really help to heal and to create the capacity to be able to develop a security, to develop a, a sense of, of meaning and connection and value that can open the door for some really important healing. Kosu Boudreau, thank you so much for your time and for your expertise today. Thank you. That was something to get to get some insight from not only a mental health professional, not only a BIPOC person, but also someone who was quote unquote in the system. There's a couple things that, that Kosu said that will stay with me. And one is that idea of, of children feeling like you belong to the system. So even though you're out of the system, you still belong to the system. I just, I thought, man, the mental gymnastics, the supports you would need to, to retrain, to relook at yourself and to realize this is not your chosen. This is not the path. This is not the final destiny for you. And that other idea of school, which is the social place that you're supposed to be socialized, but how difficult it is to, to, to fit in when your emotional regulation isn't there. So you get punished. And Candy, you spoke a little bit about this, about you got to use the survival skills you have or the ones that people teach you. Because if somebody's not feeding you right and somebody's not taking care of your, you know, your clothing and your, edu- your medical needs, then you, you use what's left to you. And sometimes that's, that's the stuff that society punishes us for. That's the stuff society disciplines us for. Anne-Marie, so, so let's, let, let's micro, let's macro that now for a second, see how it plays out. As, as a person of color, growing up, feeling like you are nothing, less than nothing, ugly, all these things, you know, these, these really harmful identity um, traits that you've, uh, you've kind of taken on, how do you become a CEO? <laughs> you know, like, how do you become a president of something? How do you become someone who feels like you are worthy of leading large groups of maybe your community or just a, a company? How do you, you know, get to the the next rung of success, you know, by our societal standards? You know, this this puts you at a very, very, um, in a precarious place for, for moving through the world because just on a very base level, you just don't think you're worthy. Yeah, when you're still a kid's, when you're still a kid's ability to dream, you're still in the future in so many ways. You know, every time I've ever been interviewed about the things in my life, whether it be law school or my television show or whatever, people say, did you ever imagine this was going to happen? And I always say, of course I did. Of course I imagined it. Otherwise, it would not have happened. So if you're in a situation where you just can't even have those imaginings, where, where in fact, just to have those dreams would be dangerous, the chances of you ever getting there are so slim. And, you know, I am always so honored when people share their stories with us. And we know, we recognize, we acknowledge these are tough conversations. And we always appreciate people sharing what they've lived. 
And we also want to thank uh, you for taking the time to listen today. Also, a reminder, folks, that this podcast is not a substitute for therapy. And please reach out to mental health professionals if you need help. For more information on that and what you heard on the show, head over to the podcast show notes or visit letstalk.bell.ca, where you'll find links to resources, helpline numbers, and much more. And remember to subscribe, share, so that you know when a new episode drops. Thank you so much for being here. That's it for today. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode of From Where We Stand, Conversations on Race and Mental Health.